You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Alex Sujung Kim Pang, who is the founder of Strategy and Rest, his company that advises companies on how to, I guess, instill more productivity and creativity in their workforce by providing an environment that facilitates better rest. We'll talk about that for sure. Also a visiting scholar at Stanford University. You've been doing some stuff there and the author of uh, some great books, the most recent of which is called Shorter, Work Better, Smarter, and Less. Here's how. Before that, he had this book, uh, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. I think you're seeing a theme here. And the previous book was called The, The Distraction addiction, which I spent about a half hour this morning trying to find, <laughs> you know, buried in various uh, book piles because my books are not as well organized as the ones sitting behind you, Alex. And so I couldn't find them right away. really appreciate you joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now you're an historian of science, right? This is your background. We'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. And now you are kind of in, in the business of helping people to become more productive, you know, more creative, more collaborative, and live better lives. And although I, there's a quite a bit of history in your books, which we'll get to because I found it fascinating, there's an unusual trajectory. How did you make that shift? What got you into set of interests? Did it flow directly from being a historian of science? Or you know, was there some event or you know, discovery that happened along the way? Right. So in a sense, it's kind of part evolutionary path, kind of part, you know, or a particle collision, something moving at a high speed hits something else and then turns into something entirely different along a different trajectory. You know, the way and there are a lot of ways in which what I do is, at least to me, very much like history of science or STS, just sort of pointed, you know, pointed in a different direction. The very first class I had in college, not, you know, literally first day of fall semester freshman year, was a seminar about invention and discovery in the arts and sciences taught by a great historian of technology named Thomas Hughes. And that was a class all about kind of psychology and the psychology of creativity. And it kind of set an intellectual trajectory that I think I'm still following. Right. It was about what it is that makes people or societies or particular eras especially creative. And, you know, what are the mechanisms that separate creativity, the kind of creativity with a capital C from the sort of small version or just kind of everyday problem solving? And what role does context, sort of culture, environment play in accelerating or hindering, hindering creativity? And in a lot of ways, my book rest was kind of my final answer to the question of what helps people be more creative because while rest was not something that we ever talked about in sort of in that seminar you know it was i realized halfway through the project an attempt to reckon with and to come up with my my own novel answer to the big question of what is it that makes some people far more creative and prolific and it turns out the answer sort of that a big part of the answer I argue in the book, is how they rest. It's also, if you dive into the methodological stuff, there's a whole bunch of history of science in there, a lot of biography, a lot of looking at daily routines of people and trying to reconstruct their practices, which was something that was rather popular in history of science when I was in graduate school and was something that featured heavily in my own thesis. Of course, fields have fashions, so this is not quite as popular as it was, but it's a tool that's proved to be very useful for me. And I think also that the other way in which this is that my current work is a continuation of what I did in school was that you know my latest book about the four-day work week and the global movement to reinvent work so that we can shorten working hours, draws a lot on ideas from science and technology studies, from the kind of anthropology of technology, studies of work and workplaces, upon which a lot of work in history of science builds, and which I think the best work in history of science is a contribution to. And so even though I'm talking about Michelin-starred restaurants or 
you know, nursing homes or software startups rather than, you know, Helmholtz's laboratory at Berlin in the 1870s, it's still the same set of questions that sort of animate the project underneath and which I think explain a lot of my own enduring interest interest in and passion for the subject and, you know, whatever is particular about the way in which I talk about it and talk, you know, and sort of talk with clients about it. Well, in the, in the book Shorter, you do talk about some professions like restaurant work and so forth. But I think the bulk of the your interest is really in kind of the ideas economy and people who are working in what we might think of as uh, kind of intellectual work. And But most of the examples that you point to are artists, philosophers, you know, creative chefs, inventors, scientific discoverers. And, you know, most people aren't like that. I mean, most people, if you're working at Facebook, right, you know, you're not going to win the Nobel Prize. But I think you kind of your point is that type of work that you do with your mind is actually more similar to what, say, an inventor or an artist is doing than it is to, say, a factory worker on the assembly line. And part of your part of your intellectual history is sort of about that, about how, you know, we kind of made a made an error at some point when we started applying like Taylorist principles to, you know, work of the mind. We shouldn't be thinking of it as as mental work. Rather, we should be thinking about it in a slightly different way. And and one of the historical folks that you kind of alerted me to, which I, who I'd never heard of, was this guy named Joseph Pieper mm -hmm. or Piper. Piper, yeah. Yeah. And he talks about ratio and intellectus, right? Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And how did we get kind of off track in failing to recognize that the work of the mind is something that, you know, you can't just sort of crack the whip and, and you know, just think harder and think longer and, and, you know, think more and you'll get, you know, higher output. So, you know, Piper was a sort of 20th century German philosopher, wrote a book about the essentially the idea of leisure and where it comes from and why it is that we we no longer really trust it. And one of the points that he made was that for him, tracing the intellectual history of the ideas of leisure and work, his claim was that the more we came to see ideas as the product of reason as a, you know, sort of logical deduction and so on, as opposed to things that came from inspiration. The more we saw intellectual work as a form of labor, and the less we trusted the idea that inspiration and the things that promoted inspiration sort of had any kind of epistemological certainty to them. Now, pulling a little closer to the present, you know, I think that, you know, the question of why is, why have we picked up the habits of the early 20th century of 20th century factory work and applied them to knowledge work? Well, I think part of the answer is that both of these spring from the same set of assumptions deeply embedded in American culture about the kind of moral value of hard work and of the kind of necessity of long hours. William James had a talk in the late 1890s where he compares, you know, the always harried, always rushing American to the more relaxed language, you know, leisurely, you know, Englishman or Scot and how it is that we, that Americans rush to and fro constantly in a state of nervous exhaustion and yet do not necessarily achieve more than their cousins across the pond. So you can argue that this is, it's not just a function of like Taylorism and Fordism, but really, you know, you can blame like good Pence Williams and sort of the Puritans and probably also the Quakers to a degree. Now, I think that the problem we've always confronted with knowledge work is that there is a certain amount of it that actually is kind of bureaucrat, you know, can be bureaucratized and organized, right? You know, processing claims or doing paperwork does bear enough of a resemblance to factory work so that you feel like you can apply the same tools from one to the other. However, as we have moved into a world in which creativity matters more and originality matters more, it's become increasingly difficult for those tools to have continued utility. The problem is we don't really yet have much better tools that, agree, that we agree upon, right? With creative work, unlike, you know, being in the factory or in the field, at the end of the day, we don't have a bucket of widgets or a certain area of field that's been plowed. And so as a result, the amount of time that we spend working becomes a proxy for how well we are working. 
And then there were, I think, more recent cultural examples that have reinforced this idea. I think that, you know, within the tech industry and finance, you know, have kind of helped undermine the idea that success is a story of steady growth from the mailroom to, you know, sort of the corner office, right? It's now something that happens super quickly in a few years where you work titanically long hours in between economic slumps and you make your fortune before either you burn out or the next, you know, the next downturn happens. And so the, in contrast to, let's say, 60 years ago, when both General Motors and General Electric were run by guys both named Charlie Wilson, both of whom had started in the mailroom in their respective companies and had worked their way up, taken their turn, paid their dues, etc. We now have a world in which, you know, in which success is a bit like fashion. It happens fast. And so you can identify this, this set of challenge of the valorization of overwork as something that has fairly recent origins, as something that has, you know, kind of American cultural origins, or something that really goes back to roughly the Enlightenment. But wherever you start it, you know, all of this means that these are ideas that are very firmly embedded, that are really easy for us to pick up and act upon, and which consequently makes them very difficult to dislodge and to rethink. I think, and then as for the question of, you know, how transferable the stories of a Darwin or an Einstein or a Beethoven are to our everyday lives, or, you know, most of us kind of knowledge toilers in the vineyard as opposed to sort of these great minds, I think that the answer is that, okay, first of all, that there is less of a great divide between capital C creativity and small c creativity than you might first think. That so far as we can tell that at the kind of brain level, the mechanisms that we use for solving problems on an everyday basis and solving really big problems in our disciplines or, you know, or in creating great works are basically the same sets of, you know, the same sets of mechanisms. The other thing is that Regardless of whether that is true or not, there are things that we can learn from the lives of super creative and prolific people in much the same way that if you're an athlete, you can learn a lot about the game from LeBron James or Serena Williams or Simone Biles, even if you are never able to play at their level. And so, you know, even if you don't have the kind of control over your own schedule or you don't aspire to do work the sort of work of, you know, Dickens or a Fields medalist in mathematics, there's still things you can learn about creativity, about how to work, about how to rest that has real value. So a lot of what you describe is built on empirical work. And there's a lot of empirical evidence that productivity tends to taper off. And this is not just true for intellectual work, but also for physical work, right? Where productivity starts to taper off beyond a point. And this empirical evidence, you know, you would think would lead to a change in, in practices. But, you know, one of the studies that I cite in my class on the workplace is this one that was published in JAMA, which shows that when you work these residents, right, these long, continuous shifts without any kind of rest, the accident rate and the error rate just starts to, you know, skyrocket exponentially. I mean, it just, you know, you're basically, you're just killing people and it doesn't save you any money because you could just reorganize the schedule. And yet, you know, most hospitals still use the same routine and, and regimen. So I get the idea that, okay, look, we can't always measure output and therefore we're going to use input as a proxy for output. But it seems like even when the output is very clear, there appears to be some resistance on the part of both employers and employees to kind of acknowledging and recognizing that, you know, their conventional assumptions about this relationship are, are incorrect. So how do you account for that? Is it just a deep, is it about identity? Is it about culture? Is it about you know, do these doctors think, well, I had to go through it, so you got to go through it. You know, I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't do this. And of <laughs> course, I'm wonderful. So, you know, I want you to be just as wonderful as me. You know, like what? what? No, you know, I think an awful lot of it is professional identity and culture and the difficulty of kind of reimagining how how work could be different. I think that the, you know, when you have generations of people who have worked this way, when, you know, you've done it yourself, when all your friends have done it, that can make it really difficult to, you know, to envision doing things, 
doing things in a different way. I think, you know, and actually medicine offers a really interesting example because it's a bit of an edge case in that, yes, it's absolutely the case that, you know, error rates go up as with the number of hours that people work. Right. And then, you know, particularly once you get into the 12 to 24 hour range with medical residents, the likelihood of administering the wrong drug, for example, sort of shoot way up. And also the likelihood that people are going to remember stuff that they're supposed to have learned in the last several hours of the shift also go down. Despite this, you know, there were, as you probably teach, you know, huge arguments when there were changes in recommended standards for residencies for surgeons, for example, you know, sort of to back away from doing 90 hour weeks. And only a small part of the argument, at least the, the formal argument, was about finance. A lot of it was about just stuff like continuity of care and about the fact that there are things that you can learn about how the body responds to treatments only if you watch a patient and you spend time with them over the course of 24 hours that you can never learn in the course of eight hours. Likewise, there's a challenge with handoffs, right? One of the places where sort of medical errors are introduced or when one team leaves and another team takes over. So the fewer handoffs, the lower the odds of handoff-related problems. And so in the case of medicine, there is a bit of a juggling act that goes on that doesn't happen when you're doing, let's say, you know, when you're working in a big law firm or at Facebook. But I think that, you know, no matter, there is this sense that there is a kind of, you know, that in all of these professions, work and how you work is an expression, not just of social identity, but of personal identity. And it is really easy to think of that the more you work, the more committed you seem to your colleagues, the more committed you feel yourself. To some degree, it is also a hedge against the uncertainties of the marketplace, whether it's the academic marketplace or becoming a partner or insert issue in whatever field. And so, you know, and one of the things that I have seen in companies that have moved, done things like move to four day weeks is just how much work they've got to do in order to take those ideas and to set them aside and to go down a different path. And I think that this, you know, this is not something that we can diagnose, diagnose pretty clearly, but, you know, the work of, you know, we should not underestimate how much work and how much of a shift of mindset turns out to be required in order to take your own career or to take an organization and to set it down a different path that does not assume that more hours are better, that more hours mean that you are a better worker, not just in the more productive sense, but in the moral sense. And that the thing that you've got to learn how to do in order to become more successful is to do more of that stuff. So a long answer, I know. Well, in your book in, in Rest, it's there's a bit of a tension because on one hand, you're arguing that balancing work and rest or complementing work and rest in a deliberate way will improve your quality of life, right? In other words, there's a there's this function about what the good life looks like. But there's another story underneath, which is even if your goal is to kind of maximize work, right? And, you know, work is everything to you, then you still want to have, you know, rest as a way of helping you with work. And so in some ways, this sounds almost too good to be true, right? Because normally we think in terms of, of trade-offs and you're saying, oh, well, there, you know, there isn't even a trade-off here. Even if you don't believe in having a good life and you just want to be this this person who is optimally productive, you still have to kind of do exactly the same thing as if you didn't care about being productive, but rather cared about, you know, some, some higher function. Are you overselling it or do you really believe that there isn't this trade-off between the good life and productivity? Because Americans tend to believe that their meaning comes from their work, right? They're, when they look in the mirror and they, you know, and they say, well, how am I going to view myself when I die? You know, they, they tend to think, well, you know, I, <laughs> I made vice president. <laughs> so, and I think part of what you're arguing is, well, maybe, you know, there's, there's a whole separate subtext, which is, hey, maybe that shouldn't be your, your goal. But you're saying even if it is your goal, I still think you ought to take some, some rest. Yeah. No, it's not too good to be true. And this actually is true for organizations as well as for individuals that, and we can, we can get into that if we want, but I think that the, the, there is abundant evidence from, you know, from lots of lives that show that at least at a certain point in your, in your professional life or your creative life that, you know, learn that to balance work and rest 
actually makes the work better. It makes your life richer. And it also makes for a longer, more sustainable creative life. A shocking number of the people who I talk about in the book publish their last books or their last discoveries in their 70s or their 80s, right? These are not people who burn out at 25 or 30. I think it's also sometimes when talking about the four-day week for companies, you know, I do have the sense that it feels a little bit like one of those internet ads about this one weird trick that, you know, solves a dozen different problems that you have. And, you know, for companies, it is a way of dealing with recruitment and retention issues, work-life balance, making places more creative. It's a forcing function for increasing efficiency within organizations, all of which actually happen with individuals as well. But I think we are all increasingly in a game in which success is a matter or good work is a matter not principally of the number of hours in which we work, but how we work and how we balance uptime and downtime. I think it's a bit like, you know, if you're a, you think of it as like, you know, a good coach, right? Or if a good coach does not put the best players in 20, you know, or of necessarily for the whole game. Stephen Kerr is not a great coach because he's got or of Curry and Thompson in every single minute of every single game. He's a lot more strategic than that. LeBron James likes to do all 48 minutes. Yeah, time. that's true. But, you know, LeBron also sleeps 12 or 13 hours a day, as he says. So, but, you know, I think that the, you know, one of the things that really good coaches do is help players who are super ambitious, who do want to spend all 48 minutes, realize there are other goals here, right? One of the things we want to do is not just get through, you know, just rack up the points in this game, but we want to get through the championship. We need to get through the playoffs. We need you to play at 100% for the next four months, not just the next 40 minutes. And that kind of strategic thinking about strategic application of passion, strategic application of energy is something that good coaches are really good at and which I think all of us can learn to be much better at in our own lives. You know, we work, we have this weird paradox where we see success as something that happens quickly to very sort of two young people, right? We've got lists of 30, you know, the 30 under 30 list is like this sort of terrible blight in sort of American business and technology publishing. But at the same time, we also live in a world in which many of us could be creative and productive people into our 80s or 90s, right? And so we need, I think we, as a result, unless we want to work titanically hard for five or 10 years and then spend the next 70 years trying to recover from that, we need to learn to play a different game. We need to be more strategic. So I know you, you said at the beginning of Rest that your book was not meant to be a, a life hack guide. I mean, it kind of is. And the word hack is a bit dismissive, but you are trying to offer some guidance and, and help people to design a life that is more, more creative and more productive. I sensed a bit of tension because although I completely agree with everything you said, there are two separate strands in terms of organizing one's kind of work life. One of which seems to be, and this is the one that I saw kind of in shorter, was really how do we compress the work into kind of these bursts and then you know, spend the rest of the time not working. But then there's also this, this idea of kind of interleaving work with rest. And, and that would suggest almost kind of expanding the work week and then kind of just larding your work with lots of, you know, periods of, is there a tension there? I mean, as, as an employer, should I have, you know, a four day work week of 10 hours or, or should I say, well, no, we're going to have seven days a week, but it's going to be three hours. Are they the same? Are they different? Should we think about them differently for different types of people? There are kinds of work that definitely are difficult to, to do in bursts of three or four hours. If you're anything that has both a high level of stress and high level of uncertainty about it. So, you know, sort of nursing or to first responders, law enforcement, that sort of thing. It's difficult to the work is simply too unpredictable to be able to break it up, you know, into into manageable like four hour intensive periods in those cases sort of where you don't have a lot of control over your schedule, the people who do well, by which I mean people who both perform well at their jobs and also don't burn out at them after 10 years tend to be people who are really protective of their free time. They're good about 
leaving work behind on nights and weekends. They take vacations. They have hobbies. They've got other things in their life than work that keep them from obsessing about it when they're sort of off the clock. And then would it make sense to have to organize workdays so that people were intensively working for, let's say, four hours a day, seven days a week? It's an interesting model, and I don't know that anyone has yet tried to organize an entire company that way. I do know some entrepreneurs who talk about how they will put in a really intensive three or four hours a day, seven days a week, and they, you know, but they don't see that as something that's necessarily scales at the company level. I don't know that anyone has yet tried it, though, as a practical matter that given that the rest of the world tends to operate on a five-day week, that there are enough challenges moving from five days to four days so that you know that's that presents both a radical enough set of challenges but also the value of it is super clear to everybody you know having a three-day weekend every week year round for the rest of your life that is you know i think people can kind of grasp the potential value of that in a way that you know sort of working that eliminating weekends But just working a few hours a day, arguably in the manner of our Paleolithic ancestors who, in the ancient leisure society, you know, supposedly spent three or four hours a day gathering food, you know, tending to children, etc. That is, for all kinds of structural reasons, a much heavier lift. Now, if you were like starting a colony on Mars or Earth 2.0, you know, and you were designing the work week from the bottom up, would you do it that way? It actually would be a really interesting experiment in a bunch of industries. And you can imagine how designing workdays that consciously layered periods of intensive work and deliberate rest, like the sorts of lives I talk about in rest, where you know, you're working hard for a couple hours, you take a sizable break, you do a couple more hours, and then another break, and then pretty much, you know, maybe a little cleanup, and then pretty much you're done. It'd be really interesting to see how that worked at scale. But I think that there is both enough variability between work that has a kind of flexibility and predictability about it and work that does not to make a move to something like a four day week or a 30 hour work week where people are working, let's say, six hour days, something that is easier to get to for a larger portion of the working population while still offering plenty of benefits for workers of very different types. So I was wondering, I mean, it seems like in the book, Shorter, that you're working from a model where the employer actually has control over how much the employees, you know, work. And I get this like in a, in a restaurant, right? I mean, when you leave the restaurant, you're no longer working. Uh, I worked in restaurants you know, for a long time. And, and yeah, when you leave the restaurant, you're, you're not working. Although most of us would stick around after our shifts were over. Like we didn't want to leave. But there's this, in most of the people I know now, right, there's in the office and at home and there's working and not working and they don't overlap, right? So a lot of time you're in the office, you're actually doing chores, you know, you're shopping and whatever on the internet and, you know, sending messages to your family, whatever. And then when you're at home, you know, you're responding to emails and you're still working. And, you know, the French government was like 35 hour work week, you know, we're going to, you know, ban you from getting work emails, right? Like can a company actually ban you from thinking about work once you go home, right? How can you actually as an employer, implement a policy which kind of forces people to rest. I I recall, I think it was Evernote was a company that had unlimited vacation for their employees and and nobody took it. (laughs) So they had to to kind of police them and say, look, you're fired if you don't go to the beach or whatever. So it's at the end of the day, I think it's really kind of up to the individual to manage their, their workload. I mean, it is up to the individual to manage their workloads. And in the same sense that ultimately we all have freedom We have the ability to choose who we work for, to stay in jobs, to leave jobs, and so on and so forth. But the question of how do you move people who are, let's say, maybe super ambitious, who are passionate about their work, how do you nudge them into a different mindset? And how do you get them to take rest more seriously and to take it? So the way in which you do that is partly through a lot of little stuff. You know, what I see in the companies that that have moved to four-day weeks is that there isn't a like a big shift in mindset, right? Like in the sort of Carol Dweck sense of, you know, the way in which people think about work or the relationship between work and time. 
at the start that they then implement. What happens is changes in culture and changes in mindset emerge out of particular practices. So everybody has to figure out how to make a four day week work, right? So what do we do? We make meetings shorter, all right? We can spend less time on the Slack channels. We can have better boundaries between work time and personal time. So that 40 minutes that you might have devoted to bidding on stuff on eBay or shopping on Zappos sort of during meetings, all of that stuff goes away in the interest of being able to, you know, to have that three-day weekend or to leave at 3 p.m. And through figuring out how to do all that stuff, eventually people come to start to think differently about some very profound things like whether productivity improvements are mainly a matter of individual change and individual improvement or are they more systemic? And I see a shift from thinking about these in, you know, as mainly about me doing my work better to all of us figuring out how to do our work better. Another one has to do with the relationship between productivity and time. I had a CEO who said, you know, before this started, I was one of these people who hired people who would sleep under their desks. And now, two years later, it no longer impresses me if you stay until seven. What that tells me is you're inefficient. The very first thing is to stop valuing input and try to yeah. come up with, you know, output metrics absolutely. instead of input metrics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the other things, though, is to speak to the question of, okay, so if you've got really super passionate people who, who genuinely really do like what they do, the big challenge you have is promoting their development in, in a way that keeps them from burning out. And I think that actually software companies offer a really nice example of this, where very often what they are doing is they have something, Cockroach Labs, for example, which does cloud-native SQL databases, which apparently, if you know anything about SQL databases, is like a really cool thing to do. They do a four-day week, and the fifth day is... You, know, you can, if you want, just take the kids to the park, whatever. But if you've got some professional development thing that you want to do, they will support it. You want to take a class, they'll pay for it. You want to play around with some new technology, you know, learn a new programming language, they will support that. And the assumption is, number one, that this is something that most developers love to do, right? Many of them are self-trained anyway. And so, the opportunity for that kind of continuous development has both, you know, a really rich personal dimension to it and also is seen as a real professional bonus. The other big lesson that comes from that is that professional advancement is not just a matter of being at your desk 14 hours a day grinding away on problems. That an equally, equally valuable way to advance in your career is to take these regular steps back, you know, to continue to pay, you know, to devote time to learning new things, you know, to playing around with some new technology that might not have any application right now to your product, but playing around with it will make you a better engineer and remind you of why you love engineering. And maybe somewhere down the road, you know, this thing that you've been hacking away at will turn out to be the thing that turns your product into a winner. And I think that that offers a really terrific model for how you can harness that passion and ambition in ways that make careers more sustainable rather than make, you know, jobs into places where, you know, that are a race against burnout. Even if you have, say, an output type metric, would you have to change the type of output metric? So, you know, I'm thinking in academia, right? Maybe they count the number of papers you publish, right? And so maybe just a lot of crappy papers get published because that's the the metric and that's just time consuming. And if maybe you reward more creative output as opposed to, you know, just quantity of output, then ultimately people will figure out that there's, there's a better way to produce that type of output. I'm thinking that might be one way. And then the other way would be to, how do you free up people's time, right? If you give me this Friday off, well then, and you tell me to take it off, then I'm just gonna have to do this stuff on Saturday. So can we maybe think on the back end, how do we get rid of all these useless meetings? You have some nice conversations about how like survey the landscape, figure out what people are actually doing. And if they're spending all this time in meetings, that's clogging up their day. What if we were able to get rid of those things and have a five minute meeting instead of a half hour meeting, then, you know, people would ultimately have less time at work and could balance their life better. So let's try and take these, these things in reverse. Okay. In the office setting, what you see is companies doing really three big things 
whether you're a software firm or you're, you know, an accounting agency or you're a call center. The first one is really attacking meetings. And, you know, the hour-long weekly team meeting turns into a 10-minute stand-up or sometimes literally does become an email. But there are, you know, there is a lot of consciousness about the fact that meetings tend to be longer than we need, they're less efficient than they involve too many people, and we have a good body of practice about you know, and a good body of knowledge about how to make them much better. Or email, where people email you know, 50 people when they only need to email one person because they're trying to cover their butt and then they're just making work for all these people. And that's a great example of the second thing, which is thinking hard about how to use technology better, right? And some of it is using technology in ways that cuts down on the distraction factor and you know increases the genuine informative factor. So that can be thinking about email discipline. It can be getting onto email or Slack, you know, twice a day rather than having the channel open and, you know, having you sort of continuously partially distracted, as Linda Stone would put it. And then, you know, I think that the third thing that places that companies do is redesign the flow of the workday itself. And the big thing here, number one, is setting aside times where everyone can focus and concentrate on their hardest problems. It's okay to be to be a little antisocial, to not answer the phone. You don't ask you know, that one quick question that turns into a five-minute sort of diversion, unless it is a genuine emergency. And you also build in some more social time during the day. So it's pretty common to see everyone having lunch together, which is you're taking, you know, what would have been, let's say, you know, three hours of kind of normal time, and you're dividing this into, let's say, two hours of focus time, half hour for meetings, and half hour for lunch. But just doing that puts people a long way to being able to do five days worth of work in four. And then every company has other things that they do or processes that they automate depending upon their industry. But you know there are these studies that tell us that between overly long meetings, tech distraction, or the, the challenge of returning to a state of concentration from interruptions, that you know, the average knowledge worker can lose between two and four hours of productive time every day. So if you can just deal with the meetings and the distraction and the tech stuff, you actually go an awful long way to being able to do those five days worth of work in four. Now, generally, generally places don't change when they're doing trials, for example, you know, and most places will consciously do like a three month or a six month trial of a shorter work week in order to kind of kick the tires and make also to say, if output falls, then this isn't going to be permanent. This isn't just a giveaway. And if we can't make it work, then we're going to end it. The KPIs almost always stay the same, partly because you are, you know, you're kind of playing with enough other stuff. You're doing enough other like surgery to the company that you don't need to add on to that, like entirely different metrics for organizational or for individual performance. In some cases, these are places where the metrics have never really mattered that much beyond hit client deadlines and keep clients satisfied. So you wouldn't advocate putting everybody on Fitbits and then, you know, ding in their salary if they're not. No, you know, no. I mean, I, uh, they're not they're not exercising or they're not, uh, you know, sleeping or. No, there were certain very large companies where you could imagine that. But I think, you know, most CEOs feel like they have better things to do. But, you know, I think that the a little more seriously that when you give people a day back, the thing that continually impresses me is it's like these UBI experiments where it turns out that when you give people free money, they don't just like go out and buy a better quality of liquor. They don't just blow it on illicit substances. You know, they use it to put down a deposit on an apartment or they do these other incredibly responsible things with it. Likewise, when you give people another day off, they use it for stuff like exercising, going to the gym, spending time with family, taking up hobbies, working in the garden, doing these like unbelievably wholesome things that, you know, someone with a more jaded sense of human behavior would not predict. Well, sometimes, I mean, maybe as an economist, I'm a bit jaded, but there are plenty of people that confuse what you'd call rest with distraction, right? So, you know, if you're watching a whole bunch of Facebook videos or, you know, you're playing solitaire on, on your phone or, you know, watching sitcoms, a lot of people would say that, that that's rest. And I think your point actually is that rest is 
active and that, that rest is deliberate and that there are non-work, which is very helpful, not only in terms of how it helps you back at work, but also in terms of your, your life in general. And then there's this, this non-work, which is just kind of, you know, wasting time. So do people understand the difference? What is the difference? Okay. So the difference is that it has to do with, in a sense, the ROI on your recreation. So one of the things you see in rest is that the people I talk about tend to have like really serious hobbies or they turn out to be far more serious athletes than you might imagine like mathematicians to be, or they're great amateur painters or such. And part of what this teaches us is that people who, who are passionate about their work or easily obsessed do better when they have hobbies that they can also kind of obsess about some. Churchill talked about this, that, you know, if you live a life of action, it is really difficult to simply just stop and do nothing. You need a break from work, but it can't just be staring at the wall. What you've got to do is find something else that is just as engaging as being in parliament and, you know, debating the other side. And for him, for a good bit of time, that was, you know, that turned out to be painting. But the most restorative kinds of rest turn out not to be ones that are just kind of idle distraction. We often think of rest as something involving like a remote in one hand and like a bag of snacks in the other. And while there is nothing wrong with that, the most restorative kinds of rest turn out to be active. They're often more physical, especially for knowledge workers. They also, there's a kind of skill element in it as well. You know, rest is a little bit like breathing in the sense that breathing is a completely natural thing. But if you are a lecturer or an opera singer or an athlete or a Buddhist monk, you can learn to use your breath in ways to help you project better, to sound more authoritative, to help calm your mind or, you know, to run faster. And rest is somewhat the same way. And I think that for ambitious people who like challenges, Thinking of rest as another kind of challenge, as another thing that they can actually learn to get really good at, is that in a sense makes it a little bit more, a little bit more familiar and a little more interesting than if it seems like something, you know, totally alien. Well, you mentioned that activities that involve mastery and control make for great kind of non-work activities. And you know, I hear mastery and control always in the context of work, right? The kind of work that people enjoy involves mastery and control. And the way to prevent someone from experiencing burnout at work is to give them kind of mastery and control at work. So are you saying that mastery and control in rest serves as an antidote potentially to not having it at work or? I mean, I think that the, certainly these are things that humans, humans generally appreciate. I think in fields or in professions where it is more difficult to exercise those things, it is more valuable to have them in your hobbies or in personal time. I think it's also the case that even if you're in a field where there's just a lot of ambiguity, right? You know, if you are a scientist whose experiments go on for years, you know, that may and right, you're writing, writing a dissertation where you have to wait five years in fields where there's <laughs> okay. a really long incubation time and the payout might be kind of uncertain. Having things where you get in contrast, you know, almost an instantaneous reward, right? You spend an hour on the rock, you know, and either you make it to the top or you don't and you get the reward of having succeeded at the climb. That is a really good thing. You know, no matter whether you're a graduate student or you're a police detective or, or you're in some other field. But for people who are in fields where it's difficult to exercise that sort of control or it's difficult to get that kind of, you know, get that kind of feedback, it's even more valuable. But when you describe that activity, say rock climbing and others, and a lot of the people that you cite in the book, they get recharged by that activity precisely because they're not thinking about their work. But you also uh, talk about the benefits of kind of mind wandering and the kind of mind wandering that happens when people say are going out on, on walks. And those people will typically often or often bring, you know, notebooks with them because it's during that kind of mind wandering that their ideas happen. And so that's clearly not an activity where you're so immersed that you can't 
have these insights. It's something that's that's more nebulous. Could could you talk a bit about kind of the science of mind wandering and and how it differs maybe from some of these other focal states? And is this a, a mental state that is underappreciated in our economy? I think, you know, we think that you know focus is really you know what you need. How can mind wandering actually help in terms of creativity? First off, okay, I think it absolutely is underappreciated. You know, the virtue of focus is pretty clear. The virtue of controlling your mind and clearing your thoughts, you know, when you're meditating is also pretty self-evident. Mind wandering, on the other hand, you know, looks sort of dangerously like distraction. You know, it's sort of your, and so, you know, obviously that's kind of, despite the fact that there's some companies that make a lot of money from it, you know, something that is not so great. I was smiling because I actually have my own notebook, which I carry around with me pretty much everywhere. And especially when I'm on walks with dogs with my dogs in the morning. Because when I'm working on a book, I will get up like around 5 a.m. to write. I'll do that for about two hours. It's I'm not a morning person, but this is a fantastic time of day you know, to have ideas, to get through my 2,000 words. And by about seven o'clock or so, the dogs want to go out. I take them, but I also carry my notebook with me because there's always stuff when you're writing that you know, some kind of technical challenge, right? How do you connect this piece of your argument to that piece of your argument? How do you make a transition from here to there? How do you finish a paragraph? And those things are always kind of running around in the back of my mind when I go out. And I've become, you know, you take the dogs out, you're walking, it's a different environment. It's not too stimulating. So you just let kind of let that stuff run around. And as often as not, while I'm out with them, I will have a solution pop into my head. I'll realize, wait, I can do it this way. And what I have realized is that if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget it because the dogs like to walk a long way. But also, if I have a second good idea, I can't remember the first one. It's sort of like that, you know, Simpsons episode where Homer was complaining about the time he learned how to, you know, make wine at home and he forgot how to drive. It was because he'd gotten drunk, but still there were a limited number of insights you can, or at least I can hold in my head at any time. And so having that notebook is a really valuable thing. What's going on is that when you move from a state of serious concentration to a state in which your mind is able to relax and not focus on any particular thing at all, right? You're not distracted and it is different from distraction be precisely because you're not focusing on any particular thing, right? With distraction, like distracted driving is you should be keeping your eyes on the road, but instead you're looking down at your phone. You know, there's this thing, there's object A that should be the center of your attention, but instead it's been diverted by B. In mind wandering- So when you're watching, you know, say cat videos, it sucks up too much of your attention to- there's not enough left over to generate new exactly. ideas. Exactly. Yes. Right. And for me, that operationalizes when I go on walks by, I never listen to podcasts when I'm out on walks in the morning. I always listen to classical music precisely because if I'm listening to other words, I can't come up with my own. But what's going on when you move from a state of focus to a state of mind wandering is that the stuff you had just recently been working on these unsolved problems you've been turning around in your mind stay with you and your creative subconscious has a chance to kind of keep keep playing around with them, twisting them around, trying to find a solution, even while your conscious attention is sort of relaxed. And indeed, it is really difficult for the creative subconscious to work on stuff while you are focused on something. It just kind of gets crowded out. And what you see with really creative people is that they kind of build time for that sort of mind wandering into their days. That's why you've got, you know, schedules where you might do a couple hours writing and then you go for a long walk. You spend some time sort of working in the garden, taking on activities that are a change of pace that get you up and moving, but which are not so intellectually, you know, not so distracting or intellectually diverting that your creative mind can't keep working on them. Now, is this undervalued as a mechanism? Absolutely. I think partly because we tend to think of it as a super mysterious thing. You know, we have these stories of aha moments and heaven knows where they come from. You know, it's completely unpredictable. So, 
who knows how to make this work? Well, actually, you can't direct it, but you can at least nudge it. And there are things that you can do in order to make it more likely that creative mind will, you know, will be able to work this mysterious thing. Ultimately, though, it's no more mysterious than how a child goes about learning a new language, right? We don't understand the, the specific neural mechanisms that make it possible for a toddler to learn a hundred new words a week, but we know that toddlers are perfectly capable of doing this. Likewise, we don't know all of the pathways that explain what's going on in those periods, you know, when you're out on a walk and suddenly it hits you that you can do this rather than that and it'll solve a bunch of problems. But we know that if you set the table, if you set these conditions, it is a lot more likely that you will have these moments and you will have them regularly. And that turns out to be an incredibly valuable thing if you are working in any kind of creative field. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the, the benefits of routine. And I don't think you didn't quote Flaubert, but I think Flaubert said the reason why I'm an artist is because I've got such a dull life, right? Or, you know, the, 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 the dull life is what makes the art possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in, in line with kind of a lot of the, the folks that, that you looked at, people who, you know, have this regular routine where they, they don't seek out inspiration. Inspiration finds the person who's prepared for it in that routinized way. And, you know, you talk about different writers who stick to it. The one thing about this routine that I found a little bit worrisome was you said that most of the time people do this intense work early in the morning, like, like you do. And so when I was reading this in my class, I talk about different chronotypes and how workplaces need to adopt to different chronotypes. But I think you're saying that even if you're a night owl, maybe even especially if you're a night owl, the morning is a good time. And it had something to do with right how your evaluative function might be suppressed to some degree. And therefore, this kind of opens up more creative thinking. I always thought it was just that the world was ruled by morning people and they just sort of, by the time the rest of us woke up, they'd more or less taken care of everything and, and blocked us out. But at Facebook, a lot of people show up for work at 11 or, or 12, right? I, you know, whenever the buses pull up. So, I mean, they, they're also probably leaving at 11 or 12. You know, I think what's going on, you know, probably more than 50% of the value of the early morning comes from the absence of distraction. Like I said, I'm not a morning person. I am one of those people in college who generally started homework after the, the nightly news and maybe after, you know, Linda Ellerby or sort of early Letterman or whoever. And my assumption for a long time was that the really creative stuff happened at like, you know, one or 2 a.m. And when you are a little older, when you've got kids and a real job, that's a, you know, that's a way of work that's, that's pretty unsustainable. But there's a lovely study looking at real creativity in the early morning that indicates that, you know, in addition to the lack of distraction, the other thing is if you're a night owl, doing some creative work against at a time against your chronotype, maybe kind of opens up the door of the subconscious a little bit more than it would otherwise. So you get probably a little extra benefit that way. I think there is also, you know, chronotypes aside, there is a reason that monks, whether they are, you know, Benedictine or Buddhist, have these, you know, incredibly early for services. There is something about that time of day that lends itself to inspiration that you don't have at any other time of day. Now, I think it is the case that there are other advantages and productivity gains that we could harvest from figuring out how to design working days or to design teams with better attention to chronotypes. I think that is, however, a very wide open field and, you know, are the advantages of having teams all with the same chronotype versus different chronotypes, you know, is one better than the other. I think we have to figure that out. But, you know, I do think that I've often thought that years from now, when everybody is working a four-day week, there are going to be companies that want to move to a three-day week. And one of the things that they will do in order to make that happen is they're going to attack this chronotype question and start designing teams and start designing workdays and routines that are kind of like personalized medicine for people's and for teams' daily rhythms. So I think it's something that we've got to pay attention to. And we also still have to figure out how to really use these things effectively. 
Right. Now, every book has some hidden grand claims. And so one of the grand claims that I found in, in the book rest is that we won World War II because Eisenhower took naps and, and Hitler didn't, right? <laughs> so, and uh, Churchill painted and Hitler didn't. Actually, Hitler Hitler also painted, but so. Oh yeah, well, in his youth, did he did he continue to paint in his old age? You know, that's a good okay. question. I mean, he he was somewhat more distracted by other things as time went on. There's no question about that. But yeah, you know, sort of there is a fantastic for people who are interested in this. There is a fantastic book by a guy named Norman Oler called Blitzed, which is about drug use in Nazi Germany and the degree to which those people were just like continually hyped on, you know, amphetamines, et cetera, is really amazing. Hitler in particular was on, in his later years, was on a combination of substances that is absolutely mind-boggling. But I think that the bigger lesson there is that even when they were saving civilization, when Churchill and Eisenhower had made time, like on the weekends, to go to the country and to disconnect the phone and to just read westerns or paint or play golf and you might be able to make the argument in your own life that whatever thing you've got going on is more important than beating the nazis but you know i think that there is there is a powerful lesson in the examples of churchill and eisenhower so you know particularly when you contrast them to hitler's efforts to literally stay awake for weeks on end so that he could micromanage the war so the results speak for themselves one of the areas where we do have high performing and highly compensated people is in the world of professional sports. And I, I think there's been a massive shift in that world. As we've learned more about the science of performance, we see these athletes taking you know, naps and being encouraged to take naps. They're in, a, in addition, of course, to their nutrition and hydration and everything else, but their workout regimes are professional sports. We actually, the, the professional football, the practices are shorter, the workouts are shorter. And this is all in the service of better performance. So I think you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, and you argue that this is frequently misunderstood because people think, well, if I get the 10,000 hours, you know, more quickly, then I'll more quickly achieve the level of mastery that I'm seeking. And, and I think you point out that the highest level performers, they don't do it that way. In addition to the 10,000 hours, they have 30,000 hours of sleep and, you know, 20,000 hours of, of rest. No, you know, I think that the what's happened in professional athletics is, I think, really very, very striking, right? You know, you've got professional teams or Olympic teams hiring sleep coaches. You have them designing, thinking about how you can design sort of schedules on the road so that players get better rest. You've got some, I think it's, there were professional, they're now professional tennis players who like literally travel with their own mattresses because you know, they recognize that rest is really important. And of course, you know, as some trainers now say, or now acknowledge, that you don't build muscle when you're out on the practice field. You build muscle while you're sleeping. Obviously, you can't build muscle if you just sleep, but you know, the rest and recovery is an absolutely essential part of becoming a world-class athlete. And likewise, there is, in a somewhat different way, Sort of an essential role that rest plays in becoming world-class at other things. You know, the Gladwell 10,000 hours rule comes from a study by Anders Ericsson and colleagues looking at violinists in a conservatory in Berlin. And what they found was that, yes, it's, you know, the, the students who were really good had practiced an average of about 10,000 hours, but they had been more deliberate about it. They weren't just doing scales. They were concentrating on particular parts of their performance. They were getting clear feedback. So they were like practicing more intelligently than lots of their colleagues. But they also slept more, often because they took naps during the day. And they didn't spend quite as much time in leisure activities, but they were better able to explain the choices that they made. So not only were they practicing deliberately, they were also resting more deliberately. And yeah, so it's not just the 10,000 hours of 10,000 hours of practice, but it's also 30,000 hours of sleep and what, 12,500 hours, I think, of deliberate rest that makes you world class. Now, of course, most employees, even high level executives don't have a half a dozen coaches that are helping them to become you know, more productive. 
But do you think that companies are doing a better job now? Certainly here in Silicon Valley, when people come to visit Silicon Valley, they're kind of amazed at, oh, wow, there's a nap room at, at Google, you know, that there's, there's all these, you know, facilities, there's these paths for walking, there's bicycles, there's a lot of the indicators that these companies understand a lot of the points that you're making in your book. Is this more just a way of attracting employees or is this a way of you know squeezing more work out of the the employees or is this motivated by an interest in employee happiness and well-being it's not either or in this case i think so i think that the things like the nap pods the you know green roofs where you can go up and decompress and have your you know and have your meditation or your yoga class these do flow from a recognition that in high pressure high stress highly creative occupations that there is genuine value to having these opportunities for downtime i think that the the way that they sometimes go off the rails is that there can be an implication that these are tools for your own individual performance, you know, performance maximization, as opposed to material expressions of sort of priorities within the culture of the company. There are resources that they can use if you choose to, rather like unlimited vacation time, but, you know, the culture of the place itself and its priorities are not going to change. So, in a sense, you use them at your own risk. To some degree, they probably also are ways along with the, you know, sort of on-site dry cleaners and the barber that comes around, you know, in the truck every couple of weeks and the dentist and, you know, the sort of the buses to keep people in the office, kind of paradoxically, for longer and longer periods. The more you can rest at work, the less need you have ever to leave work, the thinking might go. But I think that, you know, you also do see these kinds of things in places that, you know, genuinely are changing their schedules and changing their cultures so as to give people more time, to give everybody more time for sort of, you know, sort of for rest, to make better boundaries in organizations that really, you know, that have redesigned themselves to better support those things. So, you know, I think that the, it's certainly better than having like, you know, robots with shock collars or like things running around prodding you to go back to work. I mean, I would rather see posters exhorting self-care than posters saying the floggings will continue until morale improves. But I think that it, you know, the case that there is so much kind of momentum behind the idea that, these places are successful, you know, because we work so hard, not because we're thoughtful about rest, that it is a challenge to work these things in, in a way that allows for sort of good coherent use and practice and that would sort of reflect real changes in the company culture. Well, although your books are in many ways about improving productivity, improving creativity, getting more value out of employees in the workplace. I think your books are also about the good life and how one can achieve the good life. And there was one character in your book that I was unaware of, who this guy who was friends with Darwin, this guy, John Lubbock. And when I read about him, I thought, Alex is saying that this guy kind of lived the good life in a way, right? He was very productive in a bunch of different domains. Nobody's heard about him today, but he managed to live a life that was extremely busy in one sense and yet very calm in another is that life, the one that you described there, one that you think of as, as the good life? These books basically are like, you know, applied ethics and, you know, disguised as books about productivity. I think that the, you know, the serious answer is that there's a category of person of whom, and I'm one of them, for whom doing good work is an essential component of an ideal life. And so, you know, for me, these are things that are not mutually exclusive. And the challenge is to figure out, you know, there are so many examples of people who do really great work, but destroy themselves in the process. And I think that these are models that I don't particularly want to follow. And I think we've had enough people do them so that we kind of know how those stories play out. But it's also actually not necessary for serious work and for creative work to be effectively an act of slow motion self-immolation. 
that it is possible for this to be constructive and sustainable rather than a destructive act of self-sacrifice. And I think that for people for who find work that they really love, that helps give meaning to their lives, I think it's self-evident that we want to be able to do this for more of our life rather than less of our life. And that, you know, and it is no more obvious that doing it for, you know, 16 hours a day will make us more successful or better people or better express our passion and love for our work any more than spending 16 hours a day with our children or that kind of time with hobbies or at church would make us more creative or, you know, or more devout. That there are in virtually all parts of our lives, except for our work, a sense of balance and a sense that we can express our love of our children or our families or our interest in virtually everything else without it taking over our entire lives. And if that is true for relationships with, you know, with our children or with the divine, maybe it's also true for our relationships with our clients or our relationships with our next manuscript. And I think if we learn to do that, then yes, we can do really good work, but we can also have better lives and longer lives in the process. Well, perhaps that'll be the name of your next book, Balance, right? Because that's what's sort of implied by all of your books. I do love a one-word title. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining me. We've got shorter and we've got rest and the distraction addiction. Hope to see you soon sometime in person, perhaps down in Palo Alto. Oh, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.